My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is Sally Helgeson, cited in Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. Sally is an international best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach. She is ranked number six amongst the world's top 30 leadership thinkers by Global Gurus and number one coach for women's, women's leaders by Thinkers 50, 100 Coaches. Sally's most recent book, How Women Rise, co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith, became the bestseller in its category within a week of publication and has been translated into 17 languages, no less. Previous books include The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, hailed as a powerful and continuously and continuously in print since 1990. The Female Vision, Women's Real uh, Power at Work, which explores how women's strategic insights can strengthen their careers. And The Web of Inclusion, cited in the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books of leadership of all time and credited with bringing the language of inclusion into business. Sally Helgeson, welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you, William. It's wonderful to be here with you and with your listeners. Uh, a Cade Millifolcha to you. That's uh, Irish for 100,000 welcomes. I know you're a big fan of Ireland and Ireland is definitely a big fan of yours. And I must give a shout out to one of your big fans, Siobhan Scanlon of Musgrave for recommending your book. Uh, for me, it was definitely uh, a game changer. So if it's OK with you, Sally, I'd just like to to talk about the, the book for a while before we talk about um, the different challenges that uh, female leaders face. And your book with Marshall, the first half specifically as a man, it could be read by other men or women, that first half of how it can help people with confidence. And the book is so good. I was just looking it up here on my Kindle earlier on. I made 137 highlighted passages <laughs> of text uh, and it, it talks to you about the different stages we go through in our development and awareness beliefs in terms of society's expectations of, of women uh, different phenomenons like um, speaking while female so where men may not hear women speaking um, and, and, and some self-defeating behaviors or sabotage that we do and everything from owning your own personal brand, to claiming credit, to speaking up and contributing so many useful tips. And where, why I got interested in, I suppose, he for she and, and uh, female leadership was I was interested in this area and I went to um, a working group for female uh, leaders. And first of all, I asked permission, is it, is it okay as a man if I attend? And they says, yeah, sure. You know, and um it was only when I walked into the room uh, that I realized I was the only man there. And then suddenly I got the realization, oh, hold on. I'm being hypervigilant here. This is how it must feel to be the only woman in the room. And suddenly everything that my sister, my female cousins, my friends, clients had told me all started to make a lot more sense. So this is why I'm interested in this topic. So, so with that in mind, um, go to your book and, and you talk about the, the, the 12 habits that may hold leaders back, which is the most common habit that kind of holds us back? I think that, that for women, the foundational habit here, the one um, that is most resonant is expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions. And the runner up would be putting your job before your career. When I do workshops, 
that are short, like an hour or or 90 minutes. I can only focus on three of the 12 habits that are in the book. So I'll have the client send out a a survey or a poll to the participants asking them which ones they're most interested in hearing about. And those two are pretty much always on the list. You mentioned they're putting their job before the career. How do, what do you mean by that? I mean, investing all your energy in doing the ve- very best job that you can in the job you have in the belief that if you do a great job, you will be rewarded and it will lead to a promotion. In other words, you're overvaluing the amount of work you put into your work and undervaluing the sort of larger strategic context of building relationships and getting noticed, getting some visibility for your work, because those are usually very heavily part of what gets a person promoted. So it's also when you put your job before your career, you can get uh, stuck in what I call a loyalty trap where you feel like I couldn't leave this job because, you know, I do such a good job. I become invaluable to my boss or invaluable to my team. So it's, it's not really looking at your job in the context of your overall career, but just focusing on that job um, to the exclusion of everything else and trusting that that will have the outcome that you want. You're talking about putting your, your job before the, your career. And here's a big, a, a big conversation that's going on at the moment. And you talk about the great reckoning yeah. uh, in your newsletter, which is a wonderful new, new it's all rise, I believe with Sally. And, yeah. What I'd like to, to, to talk about then is the pandemic really made us reevaluate where we're at. Were we putting our job before our family? Uh, and if so, what were the consequences? And, you know, my big fear is there's a danger of losing a huge amount of talent, female talent from that pipeline to be in leadership positions. And all the gains we've made in recent years for female leadership are going to be lost. So I'd just like to discuss that. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that are it's really important to make a distinction between the long-term impact that I believe the pandemic will have on people's relationship to their work and their feeling vis-a-vis the power that they have in terms of their own work and the immediate consequences of the pandemic. Let me explain that. In terms of the long-term consequences, I think we're seeing two things. Number one is the ability of people to be more flexible in their work, where they're working, serves women very well. I've heard from clients since this started that they're learning lessons about how pointless some of their policies were around working from home, for example. I talked to um, the head of HR at a big energy company in the United States in the South, and it's a pretty conservative company. And she said, you know, we've had so much trouble attracting and moving women into leadership roles because we've always been so strict about no flexibility in terms of working hours and expectation that you show up in the office every day. She said, and and now our executives see that that's not required for productivity. So they're getting much more open to the idea of a more flexible workplace and having people have some power in assigning where they will work from and the times that they will be doing their work. She said, so that's really, she said, I think over time that's really going to help us in terms of attracting and retaining women. So I see that as a very positive trend. We were on track for it. There was more virtual work and of course, the problems with virtual work, but I, I do think that that, along with this sort of, you know, the, the great reckoning, which is people saying, I'm not going to do a job that makes me miserable every single moment. I'm not going to do a job where I feel profoundly disrespected as a human being and where I'm underpaid as well. So I think that that feeling of power that more people in the workplace have where they're just articulating that to themselves 
is often going is also going to serve women better in part because women sort of pioneered that attitude um you know women have in my experience always evaluated the workplace based on the experience of work more than just where they stood in the hierarchy and the money so i think in those ways this has the potential to really serve women well the immediate effects of the pandemic especially with school closures yeah. um which are pandemic related and not will not have consequences in the future have definitely been been very uh uh challenging for women of course so i think there're dual effects uh some of which have long-term positive um possibilities but that the when we're in the period especially of school closings and where you can't have anyone in your house etc then then that's been very very hard and and certainly there will be some talent lost and some some careers that don't develop in the way that they could have because of decisions that had to make, be made as a result of this also caring for uh, older parents has become a, a very important issue in this for many women more at a senior level whose children may be gone uh, that's one of the the most uh, common themes of any conversations that I have uh, with with um, either clients or or female friends is we're in this sandwich generation. Some people might have small kids and elderly parents. The burden responsibility tends to go to the female. Um, and here's the thing: is is you were talking about long term, there can be you know benefits there. In the short term, like you know, what advice would you give to? Um, to people? In the short term, I would say, you know, if you're in that sandwich situation, you know, look at what is really required for your family. I think that, I mean, I've watched this for years. There's become a blossoming sense of guilt about not being able to give your children absolutely everything, every possible advantage. Um, children often aren't expected necessarily to do chores these days. And this is an unusual period in history. This, this did not necessarily exist except among the super upper classes. So, you know, we need to sort of rethink where our priorities are, where, how much money we really need to make right now. And we need, you know, this is a period where we really need to approach um, marriage and marriage-like relationships as partnerships where we look at, you know, what can we do together to make this situation as beneficial to us as possible. And I don't think we've done that, you know, in, 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 in previous times, again, you know, uh, like in the farming era, in the agricultural era, you know, couples were essential. They created a workplace, which was the farm. Um, but it's been more just, you know, romance since, <laughs> since then. Romance yeah. is, of course, important, but I think we need to look at this more in a partnership way and that the pressure of this period will begin to force us to do that, to look at, you know, a, a couple as a team that has a plan for how they're ne- going to negotiate the, ba- the, the, the commitments to their family and the commitments um, to uh, their workplace and um, their ability to impact the world as well as to earn money. There's something to that about, you talk about the pressures, the pressure of expectations to be the perfect parent, to be the perfect husband or wife or partner and the perfect employee. This is often the question I get is, can you have it all? Can you have a really successful career and a healthy family life. And it's that work-life balance obviously seems to be the the big, I suppose, pressure point at the moment for people. And you talked about um, partnerships then. Is that is that the real unsaid, is that we don't have those conversations at home with our partners to say, listen, whose career is going to take priority? You know, what is it that we actually need? Should we parent in a different way? You know, are these the, are these the conversations to get that balance? Because 
I, I spoke to a, a lady before Heidi Bement and met her at a leadership development course, and she was head of learning for uh, Bank of America. And I asked, I asked her for advice on this, you know, and she says, you can have it all, but not at the same time, sweetie. <laughs> which, which, which I loved. Um, so, so I, <laughs> so Heidi, thank you very much for that. Um, so, that's my question to you is what tips would you give to people in, in, in is it is it to have those conversations or because you know, we're talking about the long term here as well okay number one i agree with heidi you know that's possible but it's not all at once unless you're in incredibly favored circumstances but even so i think we you know Effort and will play a strong role, as does education and skill, but also luck and circumstances, too, mm. do, do as well. So we need to put that out there, that someone who doesn't, isn't able to have it all in a serial way has not failed. Maybe their luck and circumstances uh, definitely played a role. But in terms of that, yes, what you say is so important, having those conversations um, with our partner in advance of getting into a partnership, whether that involves marriage or living with someone, we need to have those conversations, but we also need to have them with our children. Um, That's really important because that's what gets left out here is the expectation is it's, it's that the parents will be doing everything and the children will be on the receiving end. And that's, it's 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 a troubled model in this environment, especially where, where the kids are home from school. So I've always been influenced. I remember uh, being on a panel once and there was a woman there who was one of the senior people at Hewlett Packard. And she was talking about her experience. And she had been when she had three young children and she was an she was in an engineering position. She wasn't at that high a level. She had three young children and her husband died and left her and she could not. And she was left on her own. She was from Mexico. She was working in the United States. She didn't have extended family here. And she said, I thought about it and I thought I can do a different kind of job and um, spend more time with my kids or I can keep on track here. She said, and what I did was, even though my children were very young at that time, I brought them into the conversation and talked about how we would do that. And that if I were going to stay in this job, I would need I would need some help from them, not in terms of money, but in terms of their picking up some of the work. And I would also need them to recognize that there would be times when other mothers would be at an event and I would not be there. I needed them to recognize that, you know, that I was doing this for us as a family, but that didn't, but, but because of that, I would not always be as completely available to them. She said, and we really talked that through. They learned that lesson and they were very proud of it. And so that when I was not at a soccer practice, not the big soccer game, but a soccer practice, you know, and somebody would say, is your mommy here? And they'd say, no, she's working. She has a really good job. So she said they took pride in that. But she it happened because she had that conversation. And that's what I never see being discussed. I see more and more being discussed, having the conversation with your partner, but having the conversation with your whole family and your extended family if you have a responsibility there really important that's work-life integration when we talk about having conversations what's the conversation that we need to be having with senior executives (laughs) because i like it's all about managing expectations so it's fine managing expectations with your partner managing expectations with your children and your extended family and maybe with your siblings or with your parents or whatever, how do we have the conversation then with senior management? Well, I think that's what one of the things that's happening here. Um, first of all, I, the greatest frustration I have heard in this individually from people yeah. has been from people who are say just below the senior management level who talk about how their senior managers cannot understand 
what their people are dealing with and actually don't want to because they're yeah. so insulated from it themselves. Yeah. And what these people who've been most effective have said, you know, I realized that my real job here is to protect my people more than to, you know, please and flatter my boss. <laughs> and so that's a position sometime of some jeopardy. But I see people recognizing that and stepping up into it. You know, Peter Drucker used to say that as a manager, your job is managing the expectations of those above you and that you have to be honest in order to do that. So I think more of those conversations are taking place. Um, but this is a factor in this. This is the big factor in the the great reckoning or the great resignation, whatever we're calling it. The 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 fact that people are leaving um, leaving jobs because they're not being heard. I think there are also other things. I mean, in this country, you know, we haven't basically let people in in six years for various reasons. First, the administration we had, and then COVID, but. You know, there, there's, there's a reason that immigration has kept the labor pool blossoming. But even more, people are just, what I see for the first time is people do not, <clears throat> excuse me, want to be mistreated or feel that their concerns and their reality is unheard. And I think that is important. And I think the, the leaders who will be successful in the future will be the leaders who are capable of recognizing that. And we haven't necessarily built a pool of leaders who are capable of recognizing that because they have uh, pretty much been insulated, identified early as high potentials, given all that they've been given and, you know, have had many advantages. So I think that that's going to make a, a, a positive change because you can't do this without people. We're, we're coming to the limits. We're recognizing some of the limits of automation at this point and believing that artificial intelligence is going to bail us out. You know, that's what, um, that kind of thinking was what ended up with General Motors almost failing. Um, the commitment to the idea that we can, robotics will, will be the answer. And as a result, just having horrendous, uh, labor problems, even resulting in some sabotage at that point, um, remember back through the 1980s. So it was that belief that really soured, um, uh, that, that made it impossible, that imploded some of the world's great companies. So that will happen again because yeah. this this is serious. People really in, under this pressure are saying, nope, this is not worth it. And I'm speaking to a, a colleague of mine, Danica Murphy, uh, also a big fan of yours. And um, she was talking about, you were talking about capabilities and, and the business narrative is empathy and compassion for the leader of the future and all those capabilities there. And then how do you reconcile that with, you know, that that this machismo leadership, you know, Bolsonaro and Trump and Musk, like uh, Musk, Elon Musk, like how do you, what's your advice to navigate or optimize if, you know, the situations you find yourself in, if that's the leadership style? Well, I do think that when we're in periods of real uncertainty and change, people kind of look to a leader who says, I have all the answers, either mm. explicitly or in how they carry and conduct themselves. Yeah. And so there's a temptation, you know, we've seen this throughout history. So I think there's, there's that temptation and that really has to do with the uncertainty of the environment. But what I've watched myself, because I've been in women's leadership now as an author, speaker, consultant, and, um, you know, delivering programs all over the world. Mm. And what I have watched is how in general, not in every case, certainly, but in general, the definition in good, successful, thriving global organizations and good, successful, thriving local organizations of what a good leader is has definitely changed. It has changed dramatically 
from the period, uh, especially since the 1980s, when the idea of a leader was very top down, my way or the highway, I'm the boss, I do it. um, And, you know, what I say is gold. And that was very prevalent then. And I've watched it because, you know, I had personal experience of this. When I published The Female Advantage in 1990, it looked at the leadership capabilities that women had. And it was, I think the reason it was as successful as it was is it was the first book that looked at what women had to contribute to the workplace rather than how they needed to change and adapt. So I outlined a number of the leadership strengths. And one of them was the ability to build very strong, close relationships. And at that time, when I began to speak about the book and do keynotes, people would always say the same thing. Relationship building isn't a leadership skill. It's a soft skill. Why are you talking about it as a leadership skill? That's wrong. So I got a lot of that. Um, and that has changed. There is no one today who would tell you relationship building is not a leadership skill now you know, whether the organization is emphasizing that at the time, whether it's just words, that's another question. Um, But in general, that's recognized. And I think we've seen um, more and more leaders come to prominence who exhibit the capacity to listen, uh, et cetera, male and female, than the, the kind of leader was automatically assumed would be effective. It's playing out differently also often in the political realm rather yeah. than in the, you know, corporate realm. And yeah. certainly it's still um, you know, that that old style leader. We see that often, you know, in startups and new tech companies and, you know, VC people seem quite attracted to it. In relation to STEM then, if that's male dominated and I'm a female and I'm one of the minority in that. How do I, how do I navigate that? Or how do I, if there's certain behaviors that are going on culturally within the business, we'll say uh, speaking white female where uh, men don't hear female voices. How do I make my manager or senior executives aware of their behaviors that might be limiting um, women in the workplace? Well, I think that that's the reason how Women Rise has been as successful as it can, as it has been, in fact. And this, the success of this book, especially it's globally, you know, it's 19 languages now. It's just, I just got my Mongolian edition. I mean, are you kidding? And I think that it's because it not only articulates to individual women, hey, here are some things you can control. They lie within your control that you can address. These are habits, ways of thinking, ways of behaving that may be undermining you. But in addition to that, I think it helps leaders better understand some of the internal factors that can be holding women back uh, and help them address it. Now, in terms of addressing the larger culture, see, this is this is something I've given a lot of thought to. One of the reasons I wrote How Women Rise is because, as I said earlier, that the habits and behaviors, the internal uh, habits and behaviors, the internal barriers lie within our control. The bigger general culture, the attitude of the person running the company, et cetera, that does not lie within our control. All we can do to control it is to become more successful. So my goal is to help more women and more people who are open to a more inclusive leadership style become more successful because they will have a larger influence. But I think that the key for all of us is to try to identify what can we control, what do we have no control over, Let me work on what I can control. And if what I cannot control is feeling intolerable to me, then I need to look around and try to address the situation. The other thing that I think that's important here is I have watched, one of the things I've watched over these 32 years is the incredible um, 
influence and power that women's internal networks have had, and especially the women's internal networks that invite men in. Because when it started, these ERGs, as they were called, you know, employee resource groups, it sort of evolved to business resource groups, et cetera, different terminology. But these groups were, you know, some women getting together over a brown bag lunch to talk about all their problems. And they have evolved into something that in many organizations has real influence and, and gets a hearing for these issues. So the other thing that we can do is to the extent that our company has one of these groups get actively involved, push it down the path of proactive action. And if our organization doesn't have it, get it started, no matter the size. I, I hear from people who have started these internal women's networks uh, in companies of, 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 of 50 people. And it, it's a way to have influence. None of us can do this alone. We can't make change alone. Um, so that that's a way of developing alliances. And again, as I said, alliances with other women, but also with men in the organization. Uh, you may notice I'm writing down loads of notes here because I have so many questions to ask you. So a couple of different ones, because I want to talk to you about leadership development programs, networks. So we talk about networks here. What are, what are the barriers when it comes to networking, you know, because you see you, or you hear stories where some women, you know, are maybe negative and maybe not as supportive to other women or this whole notion of pulling up the ladder behind them. What are the barriers? To, because we talk about time, if you pressures at home, you know, how am I going to get time to network? It seems like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how, how do we do it? It seems like a luxury. It's not a luxury. It is essential. It's essential for all kinds of reasons. It's essential for bringing visibility to what we do. So there is that, again, this, you know, one of the observations in the book is that every successful career is built on three legs. Expertise, that's the work you do and the skill you bring to the work you do. Uh, connections, who you know. And visibility, that is how well you get recognized for the work you do. So all those three are important. And generally, that idea of I don't have time to network is rooted in the belief that what's going to make you successful is how much you invest in that job that you have now and your employment and development of your expertise. And that's not true. You need those relationships and the relationships serve visibility. They also serve to keep you connected to your job. When you're not connected, when you feel like you're just a person out there doing all this work, it becomes demotivating over time. Um, they help you learn things about the job. They introduce you to people who can help you learn things. So this is not an option. And so uh, it, it's essential. It's essential to anyone who seeks to re reach their full potential or to have a satisfying experience on the job now and be recognized for what they're contributing. So I, the thing is, I think two things. First of all, you need to look at, you know, what you're doing in terms of trying to do your job perfectly and, you know, check every box and how important is everything and assign that a relative importance so that you can make sure that you also balance the building of relationships. And then also recognizing that it does not have to be that time intensive, especially, you know, in the, in the virtual environment where we don't necessarily have to go, you know, to the cocktail party or whatever that's in the evening and then try to figure out, you know, what to do with the kids. So, uh, you know, it's, it's that, ability to just keep in touch with people, keep in touch, keep in touch, keep in touch, email, quick text, phone call, how are you doing, what's going on, uh, you know, anything I can help you with, you know, and, and ask for help. I mean, that's one thing, one of the habits in the book is with women is building rather than leveraging relationships. So le building the relationships, but then not doing the asking, can you help me with this? Do you have any ideas for me with that? Is there something I can do 
uh, to help you. So that's a really important aspect of that relationship building, that building of alliances. Alliances have a purpose. Um, they help us and, and we help others. So I think that that's, that's really important to consider. But, you know, sending out five emails a day that quickly say, you know, how's it going there? The, the power of that is tremendous. So, and boy, is that not time consuming? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And my question then, when we talk about pulling up the ladder or, or maybe negativity, you know, towards uh, successful leaders, like how do we, how do we manage that? You know, what advice would you give to, to women out there? Well, first of all, I have always thought that the, you know, women don't help other women uh, narrative is way overblown. And yep. it's become more and more overblown because I find it less and less. Uh, and the women's networks are a fantastic resource in organizations for dealing with that. The other thing is, you know, give other people a chance to come on board. Often we will dismiss, oh, she's a woman who never helps other women. I- I've heard, heard that many times, especially about, you know, more senior women. Um, don't write her off, you know, uh, send her, you know, uh, uh, an email, you know, oh, we're doing this. And, and we thought we, we just wanted to keep you in the loop, let you let you know. So uh, I, I think it's always good to assume good intent with people. Mm. Um, and the other thing is what I have seen is that especially in organizations that have a huge preponderance of women, you can develop these sort of gossip grapevines. That's a leadership issue. That's a leadership issue. And leadership needs to be aware of that and shut that down because that doesn't help anybody. And uh, I've seen it in schools. I've seen it in hospitals. And um, I've seen it in all kinds of organizations. So that's something that leaders need to uh, keep an awareness of. But as individuals, we can also, and I've done this many, many times in in my life, um, we have, we can shut it down and say, you know, I'm not going to listen to these kinds of stories. I think they're negative. I feel that one of the ways I was fortunate in my life was I went to a really good Catholic girls school and those nuns believed gossip was a sin and they would not let, they would not tolerate it. And if they heard about it, they would shut it down and push back. And that, that understanding of the danger and ugliness of gossip has served me really well in my life. And I have always put up barriers. And when people come and say, you know, I just want to tell you about what's I said, you know what, I, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear a negative story about somebody. That's, you know, go find someone else to tell. I've done that since I was 22 years old. I think it's been a, a very helpful thing. And and that women who find themselves in organizations that encourage this and whose leaders are not doing anything about it, that it's helpful. And for our listeners, I actually have a specific podcast on this with Deborah Grayson Regal on dealing with gossip in the workplace. So our listeners might find that useful. I have a question through the leadership lens here and leadership development lens. Okay, so we have all these, and this has come from uh, one of my uh, clients then. So we have, uh, in the spirit of he for she and being a male advocate for for leaders then, can you see a time and a place where we won't have the title of female leadership or women's leadership? What's the benefit of just doing, you know, female-only leadership? I think we'll come to a period where we do have female leadership programs, but that men are part of them. That's what I see. Um, They may be expanded because a lot, one of the things, and this has been a big learning from how women rise is that a lot of what I describe as the habits and behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women as they seek to move forward has been so resonant for so many men. I mean, that's what's really been interesting to me. It's been in two ways. Number one, many men in ways that have surprised me have said, you know, I really identify with with certain ones of these behaviors. Um, One of the habits 
that we tend to think of as most female disease to please. I have had some men in extraordinary leadership positions. Guy who was head of a building trades union, um, a very, very senior male leader at Google who have said, I really resonate with that behavior. I learned a lot there. So I think that if we're focused on material that can be helpful to women, that that material is helpful for people at work in general. It's helpful to men, sometimes in terms of self-understanding, but certainly in terms of being you know, better and more skilled and informed uh, supporters for women. But the other thing is I hear all the time from men who are in, I guess, what we could call non-dominant groups in the United States, African-American men, especially uh, Latinos, um, you know, uh, Asians. Uh, who say, I identify with this. And they identify with it, I think, in part, because one of the reasons for the habits and how women rise, that women would share them in common, is that so many women have had the experience of having their expertise or their ability questioned. And that's true for men in ethnic groups that are not, you know, don't have a long history of being dominant in the mainstream leadership tradition. Mm. So they've had their expertise questioned. Well, I'm not sure if he's right, you know, for that. Uh, maybe we need to get move him into human resources as opposed to, you know, finance. So I think that that's one of the reasons why this these habits sort of are 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 very resonant with men outside the dominant group. So for all those reasons, I think that having these kinds of programs is really important. And we will move it to, you know, a larger, a larger pool over time, which is why I entitled my newsletter All Rise. <laughs> yeah. And why I'm working on a new book called Rising Together. Okay. And I'm going to speak about that later on, if that's okay with you, uh, Sally. And I have one more question, and it's come from another uh, listener, Anna, as well. Um, because you mentioned that the ability, uh, people question people's ability and expertise. That competence and likability dilemma, how do we how do you overcome that? Well, you know, it's really interesting, and I deal with this in, in Rising Together. There's um organizations have tended to undervalue competence at the leadership level and overvalue, you know, oh, he's a visionary, he's a big picture guy. And and that has impacted women, but it's also impacted men who are highly competent. So I think that demonstrating competence has not been as successful a route in the past. That said, what we've witnessed over recent decades is a real flame out of some male leaders who are uh, highly confident. <laughs> I'm thinking of this in the political sphere right now. Mm. Highly confident and absolutely lacking in competence. And so I think that that's kind of beginning to impact the environment. There's a brilliant book um, by uh, a sociologist and business professor, Thomas uh, Premusic uh, Chamorro. He's Argentinian, but I think he's both based in London and uh, and in the U.S., and he wrote a book called Why Are There So Many Incompetent Male Leaders? And this is his premise, is that organizations do not understand how to identify overcompetent, overconfidence in men. So I think that, that what in terms of that, you know, okay, there are men and there are women who perceive highly competent women highly competent African-Americans or people outside the mainstream as, for some reason, unlikable, not warm enough. Fine. Let them think that. You know, let's not get too focused on managing everybody's perceptions. Let them think that. But then work to create a culture in which competence is more highly valued. And we'll not be talking so much about this likability, competence, dichotomy it's not a dichotomy and with that in mind then as a, a male leader or a manager if i'm listening in how can i be a better advocate than 
for you know uh, for women in leadership? Well, I think you know I'm 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 not trying to just promote the book, but I know from experience that many I've heard from many many thousands of men who have said that reading How Women Rise helped them get a better understanding of some of the things that were holding women back. So I think that that's very good. I think uh, two other things. I think getting active in some group where, you know, that's sort of women identified is a great experience. And what you cite at the beginning to me is uh, at the beginning of this podcast is exactly the kind of thing that's important. When you were the only man and you saw, oh, so this is what it has felt like for women basically from forever to be the only one and how that feels. So I think the more that men are willing to put themselves in those kinds of situations and be open to it, um, that, that that's really, really important in this business of, of being able to serve as allies and, and champions and, and really recognize, you know, where some things are different for women and, and where they're not. And I do think your book is essential, uh, reading How Women Rise. And what I'd like to do now is speak about your next book, if that's okay with you. So can you please tell me more about that? Yes, certainly. And it really came because of the male response uh, to to How Women Rise. I was... um, I was doing a program in Las Vegas. This is about six months after How Women Rise came out, and it was billed as a a women's leadership module at this massive construction super conference, huge uh, construction industry conference. So I assumed that the, you know, few women at the event would be in my module because it was massive. And I only had about 200 people and there were 10,000 there. I had 300 people and um, that's what I assumed. So that's what I prepared. I went to that and it was about 75% men. I was absolutely floored. So I said, why are you at a women's leadership program? And they said, because we want to learn to be much better. Please don't waste your time telling us that we need to get better at uh, creating cultures that work for women. We get that. We understand that. But what we don't have necessarily is the how. And that really struck with me. What is the how? So in rising together, what I do in the structure, there's a little similarity to how women rise. Because in how women rise, I look at 12 habits and behaviors that are most likely to get in women's ways. And then in the last part of the book, look at a couple practices that can help you to address not just those habits specifically, but any habit you identify. In Rising Together, I look at the eight triggers that are most likely to undermine relationships between men and women. The confidence competence thing is one. Um, The feeling of it's not fair, which happens with men now, too, as well as women. It's not fair. They're putting all this money into the women's programs. What about the men's initiative? You hear that. Uh, Visibility around visibility around, you know, some of the tough stuff like attraction and humor. So looking at those triggers that are most likely to undermine relationships or stall people out and prevent them from building strong alliances. And then in the last part of the book, looking at what we can do. And in my experience, what is useful are inclusive behaviors as opposed to rooting around for unconscious bias, which I think there's been a lot of in organizations and it doesn't usually get much in the way of outcomes, just can end up with a lot of people feeling bad about themselves. Um, But um, looking at, you know, what are inclusive behaviors and what what, how do we manifest them? So that's kind of the how question they were asking me in Vegas. So what gets in the way? And what can we do to make this situation better so that we can, as I say in my newsletter, all rise? If I may ask you, what's the, when is that book due to be published then? February 2023. Okay, well, that is definitely something that I will 
uh, reading and I'm sure our listeners will be uh, reading it as well. What I'd like to do is give you an opportunity now for our listeners then to, I suppose, hear more from you. I know you have newsletters and you're on LinkedIn. How might our our listeners uh, do that? Well, I am on all the platforms, but the one that I engage with is LinkedIn. So you can always uh, invite me. I think right now I have 130 invites I haven't responded to yet. But um, but I do that, you know, on a pretty regular basis. And I share a lot of thinking and work that I think is important on all, all the platforms. So but particularly LinkedIn, if if you want that kind of relationship uh, and and. And I have this newsletter that we started in October uh, called All Rise, as you know. It's a Substack newsletter. We also post it the week afterwards on LinkedIn. And, um, and that's been very, very satisfying because if you go on to Substack, you can sign up for it. And what I like about this Substack platform is that people connect through email, good old-fashioned email. So... I get so many interesting letters from people all around the world about what they think about the topics that I'm writing about, which right now are, to some degree, they're related to women, to leadership, um, and to this great reckoning theme as well. So I get a lot of emails from that. So um, people don't so much post and comment. Uh, but if you go into Substack and and uh, just look, put in Sally Helgeson, you can. It's free, of course, and uh, you can get that to your email box every Wednesday. So, Sally Helgeson, it has been a pleasure having you on the podcast, uh, and for all your fans in Ireland and for me, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, William, it's been just a pleasure. I've loved this conversation and I think it's been your questions have been so thoughtful so it's good to uh, to spend this time in Ireland that's it for this episode of the workplace podcast my special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion if you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing contact me via twitter at different paths you can also connect with me on linkedin William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider executive coaching, facilitation, and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team, and organization.